0: All right. Well, you know, the good communion's back when all the younger elementary school kids all of a sudden want to get baptized. <laughs> Happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. We've got a lot of incredible fathers here at Northwest. Um,. And it's good to be celebrating them. I'm glad Peter mentioned that earlier, too. Uh, Today, Leah and I are are going on vacation. So right now, the only thing that's between me and being on vacation is finishing this sermon, (laughs) which you would think would make it shorter. But we'll see. We'll see. Um, Bless us. I started working on the sermon this week, kind of thinking like i just probably to keep it short and just get something simple and get to the airport. And then I started working on the sermon. As I started working on it, I kind of went, man, this is really interesting. I'm kind of excited about this. And then as I got working on it, I thought, man, this is five weeks of sermons. I better split this up and push it out a little bit. So uh, we're starting today to talk about uh, a, a new kind of phobia that keeps many of us from being the kind of Christians that we need to be. And it's not a new phobia, uh, but I bet you don't know the name of it. So the name of it is probably going to be new to you. Uh, this is the fear of failure. The fear of failure, uh, which is actually called, I think I've got it up here on the next slide. It's a, t- a All right, Can everyone say that? Tickaphobia. Tickaphobia. See, you guys were so courageous in pronouncing that that you clearly don't have it. That's how you know. If you're brave enough to say it in a crowd, you don't have it. A um, tickaphobia, the fear of failure, the overwhelming fear of failure that prevents a person from taking even regular actions, even the regular actions. Uh, and yet, when it comes to being a Christian, uh, God doesn't call us to a life of even regular actions. Not only does God call us out of a fear of failure, uh, in Second Timothy chapter one verse six, this is a passage Carter read earlier. Uh, Paul's writing to Timothy, and and Paul is this senior minister, and he's writing to this younger preacher and evangelist. And he says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the Spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. Awesome. God has called all of us who are in Jesus Christ. And we talked about this a lot in the Ephesians series we just came out of. Because in Ephesians, power comes up all the time. Because when you're living in a world where it feels like other people have more power than you, Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus and he's telling them, he says, here, you need to know that if you're in Christ Jesus and Christ is sitting at the right hand of God already and right now, then you already have the same resurrection power that got Jesus out of the grave. You've got that power. And so he's writing to Timothy, and and he's got to be thinking, as, as Timothy's kind of been the young man that he's been mentoring for so many years, he says, Timothy, don't you know that with the gifting that's been given to you and the spirit that dwells in you, that you don't have a spirit that's timid? You don't have... If you're a fear of failure that prevents you from doing all the things that God desires for you to do. You have a spirit of power. Yes. There's courage, there's love, there's self-discipline, there's this, this willingness to get out of and off of the sideline and into the game. That's what the Spirit calls those of us who are in Jesus, uh, how it calls us to live. And it reminded me almost immediately of a a speech uh, that Theodore Roosevelt gave in 1910. He'd left the White House in 1909, and so this is a year after leaving the White House. And he was traveling around the world and giving a series of speeches, and he stopped over in France. And he gave a speech uh, that was originally titled Citizenship in a Republic. But the most well-known and often quoted part of that speech is called The Man in the Arena. And you're probably familiar with it. This speech has, has lived on in pop culture and in sports and in other arenas for many, many years. Uh, there's a number of athletes that are in the habit of, of reading this before they go and play. There are a number of leaders who often think about this and, and read this to themselves or their, uh, those who are part of their group before they go out and do things that take courage. And here's what this part of Theodore Roosevelt's speech said. He said, it's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly." so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat." In the days after that, the the French Education Department took the speech and put it out in every one of their schools so that students could learn it. Uh, Some of the military academies still have all of their cadets learn this speech verbatim before they can graduate uh, into uh, the military. There is uh, something about this speech that resonated. 500 copies of it were bound and sold out immediately, and it has continued to be printed and quoted over and over again Uh, Since he spoke the words, very typical Theodore Roosevelt style, someone asked him about uh, how popular it immediately became. And he said, you know, I don't really understand why it was such a big deal, but I guess it made a difference to some of the people that heard it. It has echoed through the last 111 years. If you're familiar at all with Brene Brown, someone who's written a huge number of books and done research on vulnerability and the courage that it takes to be true, uh, to yourself and to others. Uh, her first book, where she really kind of put out her research on how so many of us hide behind a false mask. And so many of us don't want to actually let other people see us. And so instead, we with fear and an unwillingness to courageously be ourselves with the ones we trust the most, we're not willing to do that. And so we put up a mask and we hide behind uh, appearances and we hide behind a dishonesty. She challenges people instead to do the difficult work of being vulnerable with the people you love the most because it's the people who are willing to do that that become wholehearted and the healthiest among us. Her book was titled Daring Greatly, taken directly from her inspiration from the speech by Theodore Roosevelt. And her book focuses on how a truly courageous life is one that fully connects with the people that you love and that love you and that you trust and who trust you, that you're willing to really be yourself with them, daring greatly. See, courage takes all kinds of forms. but Brene writes that nothing has transformed my life more than realizing that it's a waste of time to evaluate my worthiness by weighing the reaction of the people in the stands. How many of us are still waiting to learn that lesson? You see, if you ever lay in bed at night thinking about the worst thing that someone said about you who doesn't actually know you very well. Or if you lay in bed at night thinking, man, that person just doesn't know my true self, and they're not doing the work, but they're so critical of everything I'm trying to get done at work or in our family, and, and they're not putting their work in like I am, but they sure are critical of me while I'm trying to make a difference. And we let those people's words weigh so heavily on our hearts and our minds, Brene Brown says, I finally have figured out not to let the critic in the stands tell me what my real worth actually is. And my life has been so much better since I figured that out. And as Christians, not only do we figure out not to let the critic on the side of the arena tell us that we're not worth anything, we know that our worth is rooted in so much more than that. We know that we're created in God's image. We know that we're called to not live lives of timidity, but of boldness and power. We know that as Christians, we're called to be the ones in the arena, not on the sidelines. God calls us to greatness, not for our glory, but for His. And yet so often, we're sitting in the stands. We're watching what God is up to. We're watching what other faithful Christians are doing. And we look at them and we think, man, they are incredible. Wouldn't it be amazing to be like them? But I'm over here because I'm crippled by my etichophobia, my fear of failure, my unwillingness to take risks with the chance that it might come with failure an unwillingness to pursue the great rewards that God promises me will happen if I step out in boldness and power and faith, God says He's going to be there. God says, I don't have to go alone, but I'm so afraid of my failure that I'm going to stay here on the sidelines, see what others are up to. The real difference between the ones in the stands and the ones in the arena is that the people in the arena, have dealt with their fear of failure. And the ones on the stands are crippled by it. That's the difference. And so right now in your life, if you're thinking, man, I feel like I'm just on the sidelines watching what's going on, it's a fear of failure that is has likely to put you there. And yet over and over again in Scripture, we're called out by God and by, uh, and by the writers of Scripture to live boldly. So we don't have to worry about failure. What we learn over and over again in Scripture is that when you take a risk on behalf of God's kingdom, there's only three potential outcomes. Potential number one, you'll succeed, which is a good outcome. Potential number two, you're going to fail miserably and God's going to pick you up. And when you fail and God picks you up, do you know what you're left with? Gratitude, worship, praise. And if it's not one of those two things, then the third one is this, that if you fail, it is often in failure that God uses those moments when you're down in the pit to teach you what he needs you to learn. Right. To grow in you some skill or ability or understanding or faith that you're currently lacking. And that it's only if you take the risk and fail to succeed and, and end up in the pit going, why am I here, God, that God says, I'm going to grow something in you. Oh, yeah. I'm going to mature something in you that you didn't even know was missing. But on the other side of this, you're going to be stronger. And it comes up over and over again. The Psalms are filled with these reminders. And the reason that we would not be surprised Psalms is filled with these is Psalms are the prayer book in the song book of Israel. And Psalms goes through a cycle. Things are great. We give God glory. Glory things are going bad, we cry out to God and ask for them to change. Because of that, when they do change, we give God thanksgiving and praise. And when we give Him thanksgiving and praise, after a while, things are so good that we now give Him praise and glory for how good things are, but with a, remem- with a memory that they haven't always been this way. Because yes. God got us through the tough stuff. And Psalms over and over again goes through this cycle. And so it's no surprise that the psalmist have this memory of all the things that God does in moments of failure. So Psalm 119 and 71 says, It was good for me to be afflicted. We don't usually say that. But but the psalmist says, It was good for me to be afflicted. And he doesn't tell us in this instance what kind of affliction. It could be anything. It could be illness. It could be suffering. It could be a lack of financial security. It could be going through all kinds of grief and loss, but that affliction was good because it helped me to learn God's decrees. It was worth going through the tough times because it helped me to have a better knowledge of Your Word and Your laws and Your decrees. Psalm 40, verse 2 and 3 says this, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry." He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire, and he set my feet on a rock and gave me firm places to stand. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And then he put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. Why? Because I was in the pit. Yes. Yeah. How'd you get in the pit? Because I was out wandering in a place where where I was taking risks and chances. I was on an adventure. I was going out and living in a way that wasn't locked in my room saying, boy, if I just stay in my room and don't take any chances and don't go out in the woods, I'll stay safe and on good foundations. No, God wants us out in the world and living. And when we do that, sometimes you're going to end up in the slimy, muddy pit. And you can't get out unless God reaches down. He picks you up and he gets you out of the pit and he sets you on the firm foundation. And what's the result of this? The first thing that happens as a result of our being pulled out of the pit and putting put on the rock is that we now can say, God, you are worthy of praise and thanksgiving and glory. We praise God with confidence because of what he's done for us. And the second one is that the world begins to take notice the world says, "Man, look at that guy. He went out and took a chance, and, and it went bad. He was in a slimy, muddy pit, and God got him out, and God took care of it, and God set him on a rock." I want to follow a God that's faithful to His people, like well, that guy's God. And so the world begins to take notice when people live lives of boldness and not of fear, because we have a confidence that our God will see us through the risk that we're taking. Psalm 145 in verse 14 says this. He, this is talking about God. God helps those who are in trouble. He lifts those who have fallen. Over and over again, the Psalms have so much confidence. We struggle with this today. And I think one of the reasons that we struggle with this is because we live in a secular age where when we are going through a tough time, we go to our knees in prayer. God, get me through this. Help me to get a job. I can't endure unemployment any longer. And then we get a job and we go, boy, that resume sure was good, wasn't it? My interviewing skills came through in the clutch. I earned that job. See, in the ancient world, when you went to your God and you prayed for something and that prayer was answered, you know who you gave credit to? Your God. We've gotten bad about that. We go to God in need, but we forget to return to Him with gratitude. And if we could get better about celebrating God's gifts to us and God's deliverances to us and remembering those things out loud to one another and out loud to God, then it's going to help us the next time we're in struggles. Because we often get in this place where we're kind of going, God, I've never suffered like this before. And if we could hear the voice of God, He'd be like, you remember last month? I got you through two things worse than this last month. What are you crying about right now? Shouldn't you have confidence that I'm going to get oh, you man, through this yes. again? Have I let you down in the past? You're still here. You've still overcome. Psalms remembers because the memory of deliverance in the past with gratitude gives us the confidence and faith we need to endure challenges in the present and in the future. every yes. tomorrow. Gratitude overcomes anxiety because it reminds us there's nothing that's coming that God can't get me through, just like He's done before. Psalms reminds us of this over and over again. But it's not just something celebrated in Scripture. This is something that is experienced in all kinds of arenas and in all kinds of settings. And I I want to read to you part of this speech. Uh, This speech was given uh, by J.K. Rowling. Is there anyone who doesn't know who J.K. Rowling is? Uh, she wrote a series of books uh, about a young boy named Harry Potter. Uh, if you haven't heard of Harry Potter, I can't help you. Um, God can. I can't. So um, J.K. Rowling was invited to speak at the, the commencement Uh, address at Harvard University. And this is part of her speech. It's not all of it, because that would be too long, but it's part of it. And she's going to talk about in this speech two things that she wants to offer to the graduates of Harvard University. One is that they not be overwhelmed with the fear of failure, and they understand the benefits of failure. And the other one is that they attack their challenges in their lives with great imagination. Here's the part about failure. She says, uh, to the president of Harvard and the members of Harvard and the board of the overseers, members of the faculty, proud parents, and above all, graduates. The first thing I would like to say is thank you. Not only has Harvard given me an extraordinary honor, but the weeks of fear and nausea I've endured at the thought of giving this commitment, commencement address have helped me to lose weight. A win-win situation. Now all I have to do is take deep breaths, squint at the red banners, and convince myself that I'm at the world's largest Gryffindor reunion. I've asked myself what I wish I had known at my own graduation, what important lessons I've learned in the 21 years that have expired between that day and this. I've come up with two answers. On this wonderful day, when we're gathered to celebrate your academic success, I've decided to talk to you about the benefits of failure. As you stand on the threshold of what is sometimes called real life, I want to extol the crucial importance of imagination. When I look back at the 21-year-old that I was at graduation, it's a slightly uncomfortable experience for the 42-year-old she has become. Half of my lifetime ago, I was striking an uneasy balance between the ambition I had for myself and what those closest to me expected of me. I was convinced that the only thing I wanted to do ever was to write novels. However, my parents, both of whom came from impoverished backgrounds and neither of whom had been to college, took the view that my overactive imagination was an amusing personal quirk that would never pay a mortgage or secure a pension. I know that the irony strikes with the force of a cartoon anvil now. If you don't know, JK Rowling's uh, net worth recently surpassed the Queen of England. So there's the irony. I would like to make it clear in parentheses that I do not blame my parents for their point of view. There is an expiration date on blaming your parents for steering you in the wrong direction. Quick Father's Day note. Kids, you need to hear this. There should always be an expiration date on blaming your parents for leading you in the wrong direction. At least I hope there is. But she continued. The moment you are old enough to take the wheel, responsibility lies with you. What is more, I cannot criticize my parents for hoping that I would never experience poverty. They had been poor themselves, and I've since been poor, and I quite agree with them that it's not a good experience. Poverty entails fear and stress and sometimes depression. It means a thousand petty humiliations and hardships. Climbing out of poverty by your own efforts, that is indeed something on which to pride yourself, but poverty itself is romanticized only by fools. What I feared most for myself at your age was not poverty. It was failure. We have all have to decide for ourselves what constitutes failure, but the world is quite eager to give you a set of criteria if you let it. So I think it's fair to say that by any conventional measure, a mere seven years after my graduation day, I had failed on an epic scale. An exceptionally short-lived marriage had imploded, and I was jobless, a lone parent, as poor as it is possible to be in modern Britain without being homeless. The fears that my parents had had for me, that I'd had for myself, had both come to pass, and by every usual standard, I was the biggest failure I knew. Now, I'm not going to stand here and tell you that failure's fun. That period of my life was a dark one. I had no idea that there was going to be what the press has since represented as a kind of fairy tale ending. I had no idea how far the tunnel extended. For a long time, any light at the end of it was a hope rather than a reality. So why do I talk about the benefits of failure? simply because failure meant a stripping away of the inessential. I stopped pretending to myself that I was anything other than what I was. I began to direct all my energy into finishing the only work that mattered to me. Had I really succeeded at anything else, I might never have found the determination to succeed in the one arena I believe I truly belonged. I was set free because my greatest fears had been realized, and I was still alive. I still had a daughter whom I adored. I had an old typewriter and a big idea. And so rock bottom became the solid foundation on which I rebuilt my life. You might never fail on the scale I did, but some failure in life is inevitable. It's impossible to live without failing at something unless you live so cautiously that you might as well have not lived at all, in which case you fail by default. Failure gave me an inner security that I had never attained by passing examinations. Failure taught me things about myself that I could have learned no other way. I discovered that I had a strong will and more discipline than I had suspected. I also found out that I had friends whose value was truly above the price of rubies. The knowledge that you have emerged wiser and stronger from setbacks means that you are ever after secure in your ability to survive. You will never truly know yourself or the strength of your relationships until both have been tested by adversity such knowledge is a true gift for all that it is painfully won and it has been worth more than any qualification i ever earned jk rowling writes that failure was her greatest teacher and it's a failure that she realized that all the things that she thought she depended on were not necessary It removed the inessential and revealed what was truly essential to her as a person, but it also revealed the relationships that she relied on that could get her through difficult things. And while she doesn't talk about it in a spiritual sense, this is exactly how failure works for Christians. That it strips away our reliance on ourselves and on the false things of this world and on money and on reputation and fame. Failure makes it clear to us that I am not the one who determines my worth. It's the firm foundation I stand on. And for some, that is rock bottom. And for others, it's realizing that they stand on the foundation of faith in Jesus Christ. The foundation of a relationship with the God who created us that it's the this failure that strips away our illusions of who we are and how we got here and it and it really anchors us to the reality of how important God is to all of our eventual past present and future successes failure can teach us in many ways far more than success can when we are able to embrace risks and power and courage that God calls us to do, when we're able to do that, our only possible outcomes are success, that we become reliant and gratitude-filled towards the God who picks us up, or that God blesses us in the midst of all of it and gives us some growth that we didn't know that we need. And this is also seen in Scripture. Jesus, in one of His parables, has a similar story about how failure can prevent us from experiencing what God has in store for us. Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 14, Jesus tells this parable, and you'll know it well. But the parable says this, Again, it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, and to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. And then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I've gained five more. And his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags. See, I've gained two more. And his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. And the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid. I went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the banker so that when I returned, it would have at least received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more, and they will be given an abundance. Whoever does not have even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The master goes to the servant, and the servant says, listen, I was so afraid of failing you, and I know that you have such high standards and high expectations, and I didn't want to f- fail you, so I took zero risks. I didn't take any chances with your money. I dug a hole, and I buried it there, and I made sure I knew where it was, and as soon as I saw you were returning, I went and I dug it up, and, and here it is. I took no risks. I, I didn't want to do any uh, of the work. I didn't want to do anything that might result in, in failure, because I know that you expect... So much more than that. So I I was afraid of failing, and so I buried the gold and did nothing. The master says, you knew I have high expectations, and your plan was to do nothing? You knew that I had entrusted you with with this amount, and your plan was to just give it back to me with with no increase and, and not having done anything with it or at least taken a chance? And he throws them out. And I wonder if there's days, in fact, I know that there are days that God looks down on us and says, I've entrusted you with so much more than one bag of gold. I've entrusted you with with gifts and abilities that are, are just plentiful. I've entrusted you with resources that most people in the world would envy in so many different situations. I've given you time. I've given you family. I've given you relationships. I gave you a job. What have you done with what I gave you? And there's so many times that we we just want to look at him and say, God, you gave me so much, and I was so scared of disappointing you and failing that I've done nothing with what you've trusted to me. I was so afraid of failure that that I just sat on the sideline, and I thought, I'll just show up and watch what other people do with their gifts. I'll see what God does without my cooperation. I'm willing to be in in the stands, but to get in the arena to have the courage to dare greatly, to have the confidence and the abilities and the resources that God has given me, knowing His great expectations? It's easy for a fear of failure to leave us on the sideline. And yet, in the words of J.K. Rowling, the only people who never fail are the ones who live a life who don't take any risk. And if you don't take any risk at all, then you've already failed because you're living a life that's not worth living. It's only worthy of being thrown out where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You fail by default. God calls you to the arena. God calls you to a life of courage and boldness. God calls you to not be afraid of failure. And the reason that we shouldn't be afraid of failure is because there's only three outcomes, right? Success, that God lifts us up and we get gratitude, or that God grows in us something that we didn't even know we needed until we were down in the pit, and He picked us up and He put us back on the firm foundation. Over the next several weeks, we're going to be going through Scripture and looking at stories of great, great failures. And we're going to be looking at how much God provided for them and the growth that they experienced through their failures so that we can, in the process, set aside our own fear of failure and be willing to get in the arena, trusting that God's going to see us through it. Because we have a good God, and He's a God that is faithful. He's a God that will never leave us in the pit, and He will never let us down. This morning, if you need to respond to the invitation to become one of the children of that good and faithful God, please do so as we stand and sing. I know that my,
1: my Redeemer lives and, live and that and ever free for me. I know that my Redeemer
0: lives in death and, and, so so and so ever so free for so me. I know, I know that my